You're listening to The Perth Property Show, Australia's only weekly property podcast by West Australian experts for West Australian listeners. Catch your latest episode every Monday at 7am. Good morning, guys. Welcome to The Perth Property Show. My name is Trent Fleskins, your host as always. And this week, I'm going to be addressing my seven recommendations for fixing the housing supply issue in Western Australia. It's a big episode. It's one that I've been thinking about for quite a while, but hopefully it adds value to those listening all the way up to minister level. And I know you guys are listening, so thank you very much. So it's no secret, West Australia is in the worst housing supply crisis it has ever seen in recorded history. We currently sit here today with just over 7,000 properties on the market available for sale. Five years ago, that was 17,000. We have around 1,700 properties available for rent. Five years ago, that was 11,000 properties. We are currently building a number of properties, but building approvals have fallen off a cliff. The amount of commencements we started in December last year was less than the amount of commencements we started in December 40 years ago, and there is no capacity in the industry at the moment to increase what we are doing. So how are we going to solve this supply issue? And what's the problem with having housing supply issues, some might say. Trent, as you always say, when demand's high and supplies low, prices go up. Well, that's a fact. For those who do own property, it is currently currently the perfect environment for price growth. And if that's all we're worried about in this state, then good on you. But there's so much more to the housing market than just making money. And the situation we have right now, it is one in a capitalist environment, it always is where the most vulnerable will suffer. And what does that create? Well, it creates the most dire of situations and that is homelessness. That is a lack of mobility in the rental market. And what we're also seeing is a lack of mobility in the sales market as well. People can't sell because they don't know that they can even buy. That is not a well-functioning property market, regardless of whether you have a home or you're renting or you are currently homeless. None of us win in that situation, even if prices are rising as well. So what is the core function of the property industry? Well, it's pretty obvious. Our core function is actually a basic need. It's to fulfill a basic need and that is to provide shelter to everyone in this state and that's something we're failing at at the moment for not only the most vulnerable but simply people who are leaving a rental property getting divorced and selling their home retiring a lot of these people don't have those options right now and we need to provide those so a well-balanced market not only provides great opportunities for long-term growth but it has that balance where people have social housing to move into if they're in a vulnerable position, have the ability to move in and out of rental properties to suit their lifestyle, have the ability to upsize and downsize when they feel like it without being in fear of not having somewhere to move to. There's been too many times now where I've seen people who otherwise would not be considered homeless, otherwise would not be considered in a vulnerable position, genuinely not having a home to live in because of one of those situations. And the reason I've put this episode together personally without a guest is to be able to personally provide some of these recommendations of my own volition, stop pointing out the issues and start providing some of those solutions. And I hope someone out there is listening and can do something with these thoughts. So what we're trying to do here is not make the housing market more affordable. No one's going to stand by and say we'd be keen on the housing market being 20% less valuable tomorrow. I'm happy for my house to be worth 20% less what it is tomorrow so that more people can afford to be in it. Unfortunately, that's just not how the world works. Not enough people are going to buy into that. So what we actually need to do is make the housing market more accessible. That's what people would sign up for globally across the state is helping to make housing more accessible to everyone whilst not actually reducing the value of our homes individually. 
So how do we do that? We have to focus on the rental market. The rental market is the foundation of housing in Western Australia. You might think it's a sales market, but it's not. It's the rental market. Why? Most buyers rent first. Whether we moved here or we grew up here, our default position is renting. The first thing we generally do is renting because it is the most financially accessible pathway to having a roof over your head. Another reason we're focused on the rental market here with regard to the solution is to enable new construction workers to actually build more homes at scale, have a multiplier effect of their existence here in the first place, we need to provide the rentals for them to initially move into. When you first move to a new city, you rent. It's what we would do, it's what they do. And thirdly, it helps the rental market do what it's always done but is struggling to do right now. And that is take pressure off the social housing structure to help the state government get out of a sticky situation it found itself in about five, six years ago and just can't effectively get out of it without impacting the rest of us at the same time. It's going to create a safer community because more people will be off the streets, more people will be in that social housing they so need. So how do we do it? Well, we have to make it easier for current renters to buy existing stock that exists on the market. The current fat in our market is that 7,000 properties in the sales market. It is low. It's historically lower than it's ever been per capita, but it's still 7,000 properties. That's 7,000 houses. That's about 14,000 people that can be moving out of the rental market into the sales market, creating that space for construction workers to come in and assist with fixing our housing supply capacity issue. That will free up space in the rental market, increase the construction labor pool above current insufficient domestic levels so that we can increase the supply of rentals and ownership properties in the state. Now, let's split this up into the two types of housing we generally talk about. One is apartments and two is the house and land market. As a quick summary, the apartment market is currently suffering from a few factors. As per what we've heard from many market leaders over the last few months on this podcast, the apartment market is struggling like never before to get developments off the ground and for a couple of reasons. One, massive cost inflation to build over the last couple of years has eroded all profit. Two, we're struggling to get off the planned demand and there's a couple of reasons for that. Uh, And three, the continual red tape that local governments put up is stymieing the efforts of well-to-do developers looking to get these apartment developments going in the first place. More risk, more cost, more time makes it harder and harder. That's the apartment space. We'll talk to solutions in that space very soon. House and land. Well, that's the land developers. What are the issues facing them? Well, we've spoken to the big guys in that space in the last few months as well. Firstly, cost inflation hasn't avoided them. The cost to deliver land has gone up just like it has with apartments. Developer contributions, there's a lack of clarity about this in an early stage, which makes it a lot harder for developers to put their money where their mouth is early days on Greenfield's development. There's a lack of availability of contractors. There's a lack of availability of products. Things like liners for sewerage and drainage pipes, things like retaining walls that have been sucked out to every Metronet project in WA at the moment. These things hold up projects. Transformers take six to eight months to arrive in the state right now. That just adds delays and costs to a developer's project. Skewed buyer's incentives. One of the issues we need to solve is the incentives that we continually see being placed towards house and land developers and not towards urban infill and apartment developers. Keystart has been hijacked. We're going to talk about that. And we're going to talk about the stamp duty impediments that need to be updated as well. Let's start with the first one, and that is talking to the constrained off-the-plan demand for apartments. This has been something that we've missed a trick on for the last four or five years now. The state Labor government through Ben Wyatt made, in my opinion, probably the worst error of judgment it has made economically in this state since being elected. This was all Ben Wyatt's idea. This was to try and raise money getting out of their deficit back in 2017. 
and it has turned out to be one of the worst decisions they have made so far. Let me talk you through it. The foreign buyer's surcharge. It's a reality that in Western Australia, culturally, we struggle a little bit with the idea of buying off the plan. We like to feel and touch things. Culturally, most of us haven't lived in an apartment before. There's a little bit of hesitance around what it means to do so. It's going to take a while for that. So in the meantime, over the last 20 or so years, the apartment industry really has relied on foreign buyers to buy that first 50% off the plan of apartment buildings as really the ballast, the foundation of demand to get these projects off the ground in the first place. Now, these foreign buyers, they're not moving here. 97% of them never come here. They are therefore investors. They're either investing for a direct rental or to help house their children as students coming over here, adding way more value to our economy over that time as well. They also never sell, so they're long-term investors too, which is what we need, long-term private investors in the rental market. Now, back in 2017, Ben White had this really great idea that, well, given the East Coast is introducing these foreign buyer surcharges, maybe we will. We're going to raise $48 million over the next five years and help the budget deficit by introducing this foreign buyer surcharge. What it's done is essentially killed off projects like the Far East Perth hub. That's only just getting off the ground now. That was They made it very clear that the foreign buyer surcharge was directly impacted the ability for them to build anything back in 2019. And through data, it can be easily demonstrated that pretty much the same time the foreign buyer surcharge came in at 7%, adding 7% tax on top of the stamp duty we all already pay for foreign buyers. Numbers fell off a cliff. Back in 20. 14, 15, we had over 1,800 foreign buyers buying property in Western Australia. And since the foreign buyer surcharge was announced, that has dropped significantly to 163 purchases back in 2021 from foreign buyers for the whole year. You heard it correctly, a 90% drop in foreign buyers who, as I said, are long-term investors, mainly buy into the apartment market, provide the ballast to get apartment developments, to get the rest of the building financed for the rest of us to buy it going forward. That is essentially dried up to nothing. So if you can imagine over the last five years, the thousands of apartments that would have been purchased as investment stock by foreign buyers that have not been purchased, apartment buildings that have not come off the ground, and we're all scratching our head wondering why. Well, a big reason has been increases in costs. But a big reason before that, and the big reason we don't seem to be able to increase the buy-in price for apartments in the first place in WA, is the fact we have no foreign buyers setting that price and paying that price anymore. That is one of the key reasons we are so far behind on apartments. One of the key reasons we are in this position in the rentals market. My first recommendation out of seven today for fixing this housing supply is to immediately remove the foreign buyer's surcharge on transactions, start making us more competitive again, signal to the Asian market that, hey, we are open for business, recognizing the fact that we cannot compete with the Gold Coast, with Melbourne, with Sydney for foreign buyers if we're going to have the same surcharge as them. It's a pretty simple fact that this market is not mature enough yet to support itself with off-the-plan purchases for apartments that foreign buyer surcharge is the ballast we need to move forward and start getting these projects off the ground to increase the rental stock we so sorely need in the middle market. And the last point I'll make on this before I move to the next recommendation is this. Back to the numbers that Ben White was talking. He thought we were going to make $48 million in the foreign buyer surcharge over that five-year period to about today. Well, what's actually happened is our yearly stamp duty for all foreign buyers before the surcharge was brought in was about $50 million a year. 
since the foreign buyer surcharge was announced, that has reduced to about $8 million a year in just stamp duty alone. So every year we are losing over $40 million in missed stamp duty simply because we've pushed away the foreign buyers that were there in the first place. And instead, what do we've got for it? About $8 million a year in foreign buyers revenue. So we've possibly lost about $200 million in stamp duty revenue when we were trying to make 48 in the first place. That has to be the biggest embarrassment this state government has not been pulled up on when it comes to putting our hand up as to why we're in this position in the rent with the rental market and apartment market in the first place. The foreign buyer surcharge must be removed today to re-incentivize off-the-plan buyers for those apartment buildings we so sorely need in our market. So number two, cost increases in the construction industry. This is one that is a really tough one to fix. Apprentices are leaving the building industry faster than any other industry in Western Australia, more so than metals and mining, more so than electrical, and more so than the food industry. Apprentices in the building industry are leaving in droves. What else do we know about issues facing the construction market? Well, we know that residential construction costs have risen about 40 to 50% since 2019. Builders are collapsing every week at the moment with more to come, I am sure. And there's now been an erosion of consumer confidence and trust for the building industry with all the stories we hear about delays, about builders going bust, about increase in pricing. This doesn't help when it comes to incentivizing local people to start building a new home. In addition to this, those builders that are actually looking for new work, that are ready to go, a lot of them are having their indemnity and insurance, which is their lifeblood to have building permits approved by local governments, is limited by QBE, the only insurer in the building industry at the moment. They're looking at the balance sheets and they're saying, no, we will not insure you for next year. We will not increase your limit. This is limiting the ability for builders to even take on work if they want it in the first place. As I suggested, the big issue here is our lack of capacity in the industry for new work, a lack of labor, an eroding industry that has only been shrinking and shrinking at the expense of the mining industry for years now. What is the solution? What is the recommendation? Well, we need to be doing everything we can to incentivize new people to get into the industry, young people, immigrants, women, people who currently aren't in the industry, competing against other industries for talent. 2% of the construction industry is female. There's not a job in the construction industry a man can do that a woman can't do. Why aren't we competing with the industries that are dominated by females for females to incentivize more women into the construction industry to contribute to assist with the supply constraint issues we've got? Why aren't we making TAFE courses free rather than cheap in these spaces? We can afford it. This is our biggest issue. We should be putting all resources towards competing for the most talent as possible in that supply space. So the recommendation there, as John Jelvis spoke about a couple of weeks ago, we need to protect builders' financial fidelity so they're not falling over, protect them through more comprehensive and balanced contracts. And we also need to be doing everything we can to increase the supply of skilled labor in our workforce going forward so we don't get in this position again. Okay, that was number two. My third recommendation for increasing the accessibility of housing in Western Australia we need to look at our lagging stamp duty threshold. Currently, our first home buyer's stamp duty threshold sits at $430,000 with a scaling to $530,000. On a purchase of a $540,000 property, which is the median house price right now, stamp duty is essentially $20,000. So at a 90% loan to value ratio, including LMI, buyers will require about $85,000 to settle a property at 540,000. At an 80% LVR, first home buyers will be required to have $130,000 to settle. The problem, well, first home buyers on average save about 12 grand a year. 
So we're looking at between seven and 10 years before a first home buyer can actually have the cash to buy that property. So how do we help get more first home buyers who are coming out of the rental market, give them more accessibility to get into the sales market? Recommendation number three, peg the first home buyer's stamp duty threshold to the median house price. How do we do it? Well, it's pretty simple. Every six months, we can check the median house price, see that it's $540,000. The government can then alert the industry that in six months time from there, the new threshold will be $540,000, giving all buyers enough time to reset their expectations. If the median house price drops or goes up by the next six month review period, then the Office for State Revenue will set the new first home buyer's threshold at that median house price and give the market six months to adjust to that. It's not that hard. It's something we should be able to build into our market to make sure that we are maximizing the accessibility of the bottom half of our property market to all first home buyers. Now, what would that do? Well, that would open up about 3,500 properties currently sitting on the market at a 7,000 listed between $430,000 and $540,000. That would reduce the amount of money they need by that $20,000, which would help bring forward the purchasing timeframe of renters currently in the market by about two years. For me, that's a really easy, quick fix that we could make tomorrow to help swathe of current renters who otherwise would have loved to have got into the market, but for the inefficient cost of paying stamp duty to the government. Remove that stamp duty for every property under the current median house price, and you've just brought forward the purchasing ability for a swathe of renters in the market by two years. There'd be a big percentage of people out there right now who could afford a house at 430, but probably couldn't afford a house at 540 where they'd prefer to buy simply because of stamp duty. Let's do something about it and update that first home buyer's stamp duty threshold to the median house price and peg it to there from now on. That's number three. Recommendation number four, let's look at the first homeowner's grant. What's the issue here? Well, the issue with the first homeowner's grant is it's so skewed towards the land development industry, it's not funny. This is politics. This is unfortunately a reality of our state. It is a state that has always supported land developers over existing owners, over apartment developers. And it's gone too far and we've had enough. We need a balanced market here. You can't incentivize urban infill whilst also incentivizing urban expansion. You can't ask your kids to eat their broccoli when you've got ice cream sitting on the table next to it. It's just not going to happen. So what's the situation? Well, currently, first homeowners only get the $10,000 grant if they are given the opportunity, if they go and buy a brand new house. Well, the issue with that is that the house and land development market has become so good at selling house and land packages, which are essentially off the plan packages, to first home buyers with these grants, that it has been the gravy train that has built some of these land development and building companies up for decades now to create suburbs like Bold Ibis, Ellenbrook, Yanchep that we really never should have had. What's the solution? Well, we really need to reintroduce the first homeowners grant for established properties. And why would we do that? Well, the reason we do that is because again, we need to increase the accessibility of housing now with no lag for those people currently in the rental market. Incentivizing people to go and buy a house and land package that won't be built for another two years does not solve our problem now. However, making the established market where properties are on the market today more accessible, again, with $10,000 into first-time buyer's pocket there, 
You then couple that with removing stamp duty all the way up to $540,000. That's effectively $30,000 less that a first home buyer has to pay to get into their first home under 540 grand. That now brings a purchasing forward by three years for those people in the rental market. For me, it's so easy, it's so obvious. There are currently 7,000 properties on the market, 3,500 of them are priced between 530 and 540. That's on average 7,000 people we could be essentially making that purchase decision $30,000 less expensive tomorrow. Okay, so that's number four. Let's move to number five. And this one is a structural reform that I've been pushing for a few years now that really needs to come to the fore. Recommendation number five, fix Keystart. So what's the issue with Keystart? Well, Keystart was established in 1987 and since then has provided around 120,000 home loans to low-income earners. The issue with Keystart is a couple of things here. Firstly, the vast majority of Keystart loans are these days for construction contracts in the house and land industry. The vast majority of home loans written by builders, mortgage brokers are through Keystart. These days, Keystart and the house and land industry are codependent organizations. It has been the single most important ingredient for achieving our unwanted record of being the most sprawled city in the world. So facts about Keystart. Keystart charges no LMI for loans with a loan to value ratio up to 98%. So they look to provide loans to people in the most financially vulnerable situation. But here's the catch. If you qualify for this because you're a low income individual and with a low savings level, you will be charged an interest rate approximately one and a half to two and a half percent higher than the interest rate you would have got at a big four bank if you got a loan through there. Why are we charging the most vulnerable low-income earners with minimal savings the highest rate in the country? Well, Keystart will tell you because Keystart wants to be a transitional bank. They want to incentivize low-income earners who are on their books to move away from Keystart as fast as possible. Well, I can tell you something for free right now. As a mortgage broker, it doesn't take a 2% difference in interest rate for my clients to want to refinance to another bank. You could have an interest rate that's 0.2% higher than the big four banks and clients will be looking to refinance as soon as possible. That difference in interest rate is unneeded cost to these low-income earners trying to build equity in their home that they could be spending on their principal rather than the interest payments. If you genuinely want your clients to transition out of Keystart, then put more money back in their pocket to pay down their loan quicker so they have the equity to do so at 80%. That is a public service. Charging 2% more than you need to for the same loan is not a public service. Keystart is a powerful social enterprise, but has been hijacked by an industry addicted to urban expansion. What is the solution? What is the recommendation? Use Keystart as a force for good and not greed. How do we do that? Well, pretty simple. Let's significantly expand the Urban Connect loan book that Keystart brought in last year. Now, this loan book is capped at 300 loans. 300 loans. And what it is for is essentially for people to buy houses around in apartments and medium to high density housing around Metronet. Now, if the state government was serious about urban infill, it wouldn't be capping this loan book at 300. It'd be capping the, the house and land package loan book at 300 and having the rest of its loan book focus entirely on urban infill around Metronet. Unfortunately, that's not how the world works here at the moment. Let's use Keystar to force society and an industry to adapt to and innovate for urban infill apartment living and construction at the expense of house and land industry construction. 
Let's bring Keystart's interest rate back down in line with the average discounted rate of the big four and put more money into the pockets of low-income earners so they can pay off their mortgage quicker and not be trapped in mortgage stress when housing values drop, making the Keystart loan more accessible for renters. So you can see where I'm going here. Recommendation five lines up with recommendation three, removing the stamp duty for up to 540000 Recommendation four, putting $10,000 in the pocket of someone for an established property. And recommendation five, having Keystart loans put more money back in the pockets of its clients so it can pay those loans off quicker in the first place. Two more recommendations to go. Recommendation six, developer contributions and POS. This is a big issue for developers across the board, land developers and apartment developers. POS or public open space is a contribution that has been legislated for decades now that was set up back in the day to ensure that large format greenfields land developers when building a new suburb would set aside at least 10% of the land of the suburb for parks. And if they didn't, they had to pay a cash contribution. These days, that POS contribution in law has been hijacked by local governments essentially be a cash grab by them for any subdivision of more than five blocks and in subsidies three blocks what this does in the small space in the urban infill space is essentially double the cost of a subdivision for the developer who is generally a mum and dad developer what does that do well a couple of things it makes the subdivision either non-economic so it doesn't happen or it will force that developer to go, you know what, I won't do a triplex, I'll just do a duplex. And what happens is we get underdevelopment in urban infill that you can only get right once. This is a huge issue that is extremely conflicted in local government area. Some local governments recognize this is a big problem. They want to incentivize as much infill as possible so they don't charge POS. Some cities, some councils, don't care about that clearly and their main focus is simply gouging developers for everything they've got and charging POS as much as they can. Unfortunately, what this does is act in direct contrast to the state government's policy of trying to achieve as much urban infill as possible from private developers like mum and dads listening today. And on the big scale, developer contributions. This is one that really frustrates the big guys out there. Currently, the situation that has arisen in many local governments is that we'll have new greenfields areas for land subdivision, let's call it outside Ellenbrook or East Wanneroo. And there is minimal information, solid information about what the city will be charging the developer per hectare or per project as a development contribution to pay for things like sewerage and new roads and all the services that go towards the suburb. This can kill projects. This lack of certainty, this risk makes projects more expensive, makes it take much longer to develop. What do we need to do here? We need to get around the table, have a summit with all the local governments to improve our engineering and financing capabilities to understand exactly what these developments are going to cost so that land developers have much more certainty about what it will cost to actually get these developments done in time, in budget, moving forward. So the solution, the recommendation number six, standard artist development contributions for larger developers and limit POS contributions only to greenfield development so that infill can be incentivized and maximized going forward. Finally, recommendation number seven, and it will be one that is slightly unpopular amongst listeners today, and that is talking to regulating Airbnb. It's a fact, unfortunately, over the last decade, the Airbnb market has significantly gouged into the availability of the long-term rental market. Places like Scotland have now started to regulate quite tightly the short-term rental market, and it's something that needs to happen in Western Australia as well. Whilst Airbnb is something we all love and use, it is often a vehicle for super profits by investors. 
and it is one that we need to balance out for the social good in an efficient way, sort of like a cigarette tax or a alcohol tax to start balancing the market out again and incentivizing those Airbnb investors to start looking at the rental market too. Whilst we all appreciate the Airbnbs out there, what is more important to our society is, is the long-term availability of rentals. And right now that is causing a huge issue to our market. So I won't spend too much time on it, but that seventh recommendation is that we seriously need to be looking into licensing and regulation and possibly taxing of super profits in the Airbnb space, which is cutting into the foundation of supply of long-term rental stock in WA. Guys, I know that was a rapid fire, seven recommendations there, but I really appreciate you listening. Re- really appreciate everyone's thoughts and contributions on this episode. And I hope you all have a fantastic week. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Perth Property Show. If you've only just joined the conversation, you can catch up by heading over to our website, perthpropertyshow.com.au, subscribing to the podcast or joining our Facebook page. Don't forget to tune in next Monday at 7am for more expert insights, local analysis and suburb spotlights. Happy hunting!